You're listening to episode number 40 of the Self-Care Sunday podcast, a minimalist media project by your host, Kaylee Reed. Every Sunday, only on Sundays, I'll release a new podcast episode exploring topics like mental health, feminism, politics, and of course, self-care. This is the first episode of 2019, so welcome back to the podcast. I'm so looking forward to sharing this week's episode with you guys. I thought a lot about doing an episode about the new year and setting new intentions, and when I think about my own self-care, I realize that this is the first year in my entire life that I have never set real New Year's resolutions. Which is really weird for me because I tend to be a goal-oriented person and yet I felt really fulfilled this year. I felt like 2018 ended on a really great note somehow despite all of the ups and downs and I just felt refreshed going into this year and for some reason felt like I didn't need to vocalize certain intentions because I'm so grateful for everything that I already have. So I didn't create an episode about goal setting, about the new year, anything like that. And I just really wanted to jump into this year's content and jump into creating more content with these meaningful discussions that we've been having over the past 10, 11, 12 months. Um, the podcast isn't even a year old yet, which is kind of wild to me. It feels like I've been doing this for so long and yet I still have so much to learn and so many people that I want to interview, so many discussions that I want to be have and topics that I want to explore. And so thank you all for coming along for this ride and sticking along and tuning in weekly or bi-weekly when, whenever you can. So this week's episode is with my friend Natalie Held, who is a feminist, who is a university student, and who her and I have had discussions about politics in the past where we really disagree on certain things. We both identify as liberals, we both have an upbringing and a background being associated with the left, as well as having a background in mental health advocacy, And we actually met three years ago in the mental health space. So in my former life, when I was running a mental health startup uh, in the fashion space, about a year into co-founding this startup, we got selected to show at New York Fashion Week and do an independent show. And so I spent some time looking for models and looking for role models to walk the runway We didn't want to use agency models. We wanted to use everyday people who had struggled with mental health issues in the past to wear and represent our brand. And so Natalie applied to be a role model during New York Fashion Week. Uh, We loved her story, accepted her, and I've gotten to know, know her over the past three years ever since then. So at the time when I met her, she was a sophomore in high school, which is so wild to me. And since we've both met, we have kind of changed our lives drastically in the sense that I no longer work at the startup that I was working at when I met Natalie, and she is now a sophomore in university studying political science and women and gender studies. This conversation uh, takes us through Natalie's journey as well as getting into her definition of feminism, into politics, 
optimisms and hopes for 2020, and how to have civil conversations with people on the other side of the aisle when the internet is full of shouting matches. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. Thanks so much for being on the podcast this week. Hi, thank you for having me. There's a couple reasons I wanted you on the podcast. One, I just think you're so brilliant and interesting. And we met in kind of an interesting way because I was at a completely different point in my life. And you kind of were too. You're still in university right now, right? Yeah, I'm a sophomore right now. Yeah. So when we met, how old were you? Because this was like a few years ago. Yeah. So I think what was it? We met in 2015. So I would have been a sophomore in high school. Oh my gosh, you were such a baby. I was a baby. And it is kind of crazy because like we were definitely at very different points in our lives. Like I found you through a mutual friend of ours who had reached out to me about New York Fashion Week because you were looking for models. So I applied and got accepted. And then I was like, oh my God. And like ever since, like we've both been involved with like the mental health and the feminism communities online and like also can we just talk about how wild it is that a mutual friend on Facebook like I think was it Alexa yeah it was Lex <laughs> yeah yeah so literally I used to work with her at like my part-time job in university that's how I met her and she was always talking about like all these cool friends she had and she'd go to New York and go to these concerts and I was like oh my god what is your life that's me I want to and- friends <laughs> And so when I was recruiting models, role models for our fashion show, New York Fashion Week, um, I had put it out on Facebook. You applied to model and we met while I was in New York. Like the first day we met was the day of the show, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was so fun. And a completely different world, like a completely different lifetime. Exactly. One of the reasons why I wanted you on this episode is because, as you mentioned, we've both been really involved in the mental health community, um, both interested in feminism and politics. And I basically my entire life have identified as a liberal and identified with the left. And only really in the past year have I felt, I guess, like a lot of tension and like, not disappointment necessarily, but... Um, conflict and hypocrisy that I'm seeing with people on my own side. And I think where our conversations have been really interesting is that we do have a lot of the same values and a lot of the same beliefs and identify on the same side of the spectrum and yet have disagreements about a lot of things. And I think can talk really in a civil way about those disagreements, (laughs) which One of the biggest things for me is having these civil conversations because a lot of people just want to be shouting online. They have their point. They're very stubborn about it and they don't want to listen to anybody else. And so this is kind of why when we were talking, I don't know, maybe like a month or two ago, and I was like, you know what? Natalie would be so good on this podcast (laughs) because we are so aligned on certain things and just like do clash on other things. So thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Literally, thank you so much for having me. This is so (laughs) awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about where you grew up and kind of why you decided to study what you're studying and where you're studying just to give context on who you are. So I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut, which fun fact, 
um, is only really known for where John Mayer grew up. <laughs> wow, I didn't know. So, that. Yeah, he actually went to my high school. So it's always, like, always like a fun thing to tell people because everyone's like, "Oh, like where's that?" And I'm like, "Oh, John Mayer lived there." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, cool." Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> but I guess to give a better frame of reference, um, it's like a suburb of Connecticut, and it's about an hour outside of New York City. So my dad grew up in Queens, and my mom grew up in upstate Connecticut. So when they got married and they were looking for a place to settle, they kind of decided on Fairfield because it's kind of like a best of both worlds. Like they wanted to make sure like my brother and I had um, a good education, had a backyard and everything, but also with access to New York. So um, I don't think that they expected me to love New York as much as I did, but I do. I think that's definitely kind of shaped me to who I am. Um, I would say a lot of it comes from my exposure to cultural diversity. Fairfield is it's a pretty wealthy white town, and there's definitely a lot of privilege here. So my parents were really good about making sure I did have exposure to other things and didn't kind of get caught in this bubble. And so in high school, I actually ended up going to two different high schools. I went to my regular public school in Fairfield, and I also went to a marine science magnet school in Bridgeport. And to kind of give like a idea of Bridgeport to Fairfield, um, that's actually the largest wealth gap in the nation. So it's wow. kind of, yeah, it's kind of crazy to like say out loud and think about because I think a lot of the people I went to high school with in Fairfield didn't have this at all and kind of didn't have this experience that I did. Um, so I think this exposure to having going going to school in Fairfield and Bridgeport and also being really invested with everything in New York City, that kind of shaped me into who I am, like as well as, I guess, growing up in a pretty liberal state and town. Um, and a lot of the teachers and professors that I had definitely cultivated some ideas in me and kind of got me thinking about who I am, what I'm passionate about, what my values are, and I guess also <laughs> the internet. <laughs> um, I think that having online communities has shaped me really well. Often when my parents are annoyed with me, they'll just say, oh, it's fine. Like the internet raised you. But I think to an extent it's kind of true because like a lot of the people that I've met through there have, like even you, like we kind of met online too. Like we didn't even meet in person until you were in New York. Um, I think they've given me like really interesting viewpoints, opportunities, experiences from people literally all over the country. Like I have friends in California and even all over the world. I have friends in New Zealand. I have friends in the UK um, and just really insane experiences. So I think that's definitely shaped me into who I am and kind of what I believe in. And so what are you studying right now? Where are you studying? So right now I'm at Boston University. I'm in my sophomore year and I'm currently majoring in political science and double minoring in women and gender studies and sociology. Um, I'm thinking about maybe doing a joint degree of political science and journalism. Will I graduate on time? Who knows? But <laughs> we'll see. I guess um, I'm kind of just exploring ideas and topics that really interest me and I want to kind of make a career out of. So I guess this is kind of bad advice, but I guess I'm just kind of following what I really want to learn about and hoping that everything falls into place. Well, I think you're you're really special because you are so brilliant for how old you are. You. And I think back to like when I was in university and I honestly did think that I knew everything and I thought I was really smart. And now I'm like, wow, I was not even that smart. <laughs> <laughs> 
I started a company at 20. But you have some really interesting views on certain things. And before we get into kind of the political side of things, what we originally connected through was mental health advocacy. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what started your mental health journey or your journey into mental health advocacy. So it's kind of hard, I think, to pinpoint like an exact time where it happened. But when I was younger, like even in elementary school, um, I was bullied a lot. I think a lot of it came from because I was, quote, different. I was really outspoken. I was really passionate about, I think, things that a lot of maybe my peers didn't quite see as fascinating or didn't really like. They didn't really have that confidence to kind of figure out who they were yet. And so a lot of that was projected onto me. And so I kind of understood from a young age how detrimental it can be to have poor mental health when you're still trying to develop who you are. And so to kind of make it worse, I was a dancer for seven to eight years um, competitively. I primarily did ballet and I still love ballet, but my studio wanted to kind of cultivate young girls to kind of be in their competitive teams and to do everything. So I ended up doing everything and it kind of, I kind of lost that passion. I lost that drive. And so it, it just, it really wasn't a good combination for me on top of girls constantly fighting for positions and being catty. And it was a really poor environment. And the studio didn't help because they would constantly um, put certain girls in front and, you know, call other girls out. And it just, it wasn't a good, healthy environment for me, at least. Um, so out of that, I kind of developed like severe anxiety and it really damaged social interactions for me in middle school um, to the point where like I'd be skipping out on different events because I physically couldn't bring myself to leave the house. I felt so sick. Um, so when I came across you and Wear Your Label in 2015, it was like freshman, sophomore year. And so I just kind of come out of that. And I realized like I could use my voice to kind of speak up for this and let our, other people know they're not alone and kind of talk about my experience. And since knowing you, since 2015, I guess, is when we met, I have seen you develop into this super fiery, passionate feminist <laughs> who is really outspoken about everything that you believe in. What sparked your interest in feminism? Ooh, my feminist awakening kind of started my sophomore year of high school in my honors English class. And it started with my teacher, Mr. Novak. And at first, I hated his class. He had these really <laughs> unconventional methods. Um, and I really didn't like them because I couldn't understand it. I didn't know why he wouldn't just let us write five paragraph essays to just move through things. And I started to realize it was because he wanted us to critically think about what we were reading, what we were seeing, what was going on in the news. And I think back then was like Trayvon Martin. So like, we would constantly be talking about um, like Black Lives Matter and all these different movements that were slowly emerging. And a lot of, I mean, we're sophomores, like, you know, we're high schoolers. We're not really thinking about these things yet like we should be. And he really wanted to push that. So a lot of my peers did not like him for that. And I started to question why they felt that way when these were important things that were going on in our world that we should be involved in. So I slowly started to see the method in his madness. And I started reading and watching um, different things going on. And he would often have us look at literature through these different lenses, he would call them. And so what really resonated with me was his feminist lens approach. So I started reading um, Half a Yellow Sun 
and watching We Should All Be Feminist by Chimamanda Adichie. And that kind of really opened the door for me. And so that same year, I ended up writing a slam poem called When I Grow Up, which was basically me navigating different um, job things, like job opportunities I wanted to do throughout the course of my life and how being a woman was kind of a hindrance to that. And so I remember like I came in one morning and I showed him and he was like, well, why don't you perform this in front of the class? And he said it out loud. So Whoa. obviously, other, yeah, obviously my <laughs> other friends heard and they're like, yeah, yeah, Natalie, you should do it. And at first I was like, oh my God, like I wrote this last night. Like I wasn't expecting this. So I ended up getting up in front of the class and I had my friend record it to see like how I did and I could watch it back. And I got such great feedback. Like I did not think I would have the support that I did. And so I think that really gave me the confidence to kind of grow my voice and be heard and know that people were listening. So I ended up being asked to a conference um, last year at Southern Connecticut State University to present a speech like on the power of storytelling and advocacy and to read my poem to high school students and educators. So that was definitely a really cool opportunity and experience that I got from all this. That's so cool. I didn't even know that about you. Um, when I think of feminism, and I think when most people think of feminism, there's so many different ideas that come to people's minds. Um, Absolutely. There's liberal feminism, radical feminism, all the different in-betweens of how people practice their feminism and what it actually means to them. How would you describe your feminism and maybe what aspects of feminism are really important to you? Yeah. So when it comes to my feminism, I would say it's constantly evolving. Um, like you, I try to be critical of my own beliefs and I don't think feminism should be excused from that. Most importantly, because feminism isn't just this one cohesive and unified idea like I think many people think it is because there are so many different diverging places within it. So I try to make my feminism all-inclusive and intersectional, but kind of still questioning maybe some of these fundamentals or some of these ideas that people have. Lately, I think that some of the important aspects that have been surrounding feminism for me have been the politics around women's bodies. Um, I think especially right now, in our country with Roe v. Wade being under attack and having Kavanaugh appointed. We really don't know where that stands and we don't know where that could go. So that's definitely something I'm worried about. Also being conscious of intersectionality in my feminism, because when it comes to race and class and privilege, I feel like I have um, privilege when it comes to those things. So I sometimes need to step out of my own shoes and really think about feminism from other people's perspectives because I think it's so easy to kind of get caught up in your own experiences and maybe make bold assumptions that maybe aren't true for others. So I'm definitely trying to be a lot more conscious of my intersectionality. And lastly, I think it would be making my feminism inclusive to the men in my life because I think that there's still a really big stigma around this idea of feminism being, oh, like these women are man haters or they want women to have more opportunities when men to men. And that's just not true. And I think there's also a stigma for men that are feminists because some will say, oh, men can't be feminists. Or if, if you are a feminist, then you're not a real man. And I think those are really dangerous narratives to continue into 2019. So if those can be 
nipped in the butt. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> uh, I love that answer. I, I've been pretty critical of the left lately uh, and liberal feminism, I think, in general, because after being in that space for years and having been one of those feminists, I personally started to see a real disconnect between the ideology and the practice of that advocacy and just a lot of hypocrisy from the left in general and a shift really away from the individual self that shows me that the left is no longer really liberal or it doesn't feel as liberal as it maybe once was. And so as someone who has identified as a liberal her whole life, I've found it almost like a responsibility to call out the hypocrisy within my own side. Yet you've really challenged me when I've brought this up on Instagram or in my stories to really say like, the left isn't the issue here. The real issue is the right and more specifically the far right. And I think when we were talking about this, it was in the context specifically of US politics, which is a little bit more intense than here in Canada. Yeah. So (laughs) I'd love to hear your thoughts on a myriad of things. Um, But in terms of like the future of politics and the state of things in the US, do you think that it needs to become more divided before people come together? Like, how do you see the future of things going where it really is feeling very us versus them right now? Yeah. So I think to answer this question, it would even be good to kind of get into where you stand and also where I think some of the country right now stands in terms of viewpoints. Um, I re-listened to your podcast um, about where you talk about your political identity and I also reread our Instagram DMs to just like refresh my memory and get a better understanding of everything. Um, I understood what you were saying about the hypocrisy and I think that definitely comes out when it comes to freedom of speech Um, Maybe when people that lean to the left or liberals want to kind of squash what conservatives are saying and kind of paint them as this one thing of being racist or homophobic or just xenophobic in general. But me personally, I kind of see the far left as wanting universal health care, a free, a form of free education, um, a living minimum wage, and just like this dignity to have their own identity. And so right now I see the quote far right as wanting a state where babies are being locked up for the color of their skin or saying if you're a white nationalist that you're a very fine person and only be sentenced to 20 years serving three for beating a black man at the Charlottesville rally and just allowing white men to continue to serve in positions of power and not have more representation. So for me personally, when the left, when the political left poses a a direct threat to the values of our republic, then yeah, like I would absolutely go and try to squash that. But I just think it's dangerous to identify as a liberal yet be removed from the left under this false pretense of hypocrisy when I kind of see the left as being the ones that are able to call out this blatant xenophobia. So it was kind of clear to me with this last Congress that they weren't really playing this fair game and they weren't holding up these values that make up our constitution and these fundamental principles of allowing liberty and justice for all. 
And I think when we were talking over DMs, um, I use this analogy and I think it really resonated and I think it's still really relevant. It was, there's a burning house and a neighbor points out that the city should move the fire hydrant closer to the street corner. It's an excellent point, but the fire department should still work with what it's got and put out the fire while it's still raging. So I feel like that analogy really drives it home because it's important to reiterate the idea that you should constantly be questioning your own beliefs, but I don't think that you should necessarily compromise your morals when it comes to identifying with an ideology that is looking out for the well-being of all kinds of people. So introspection is really important, but it shouldn't be conflated or mistaken with this uh, minor shift to the left as being dangerous or more dangerous as a resurgence of white nationalism. And I think statistics have even shown right now that the right has moved six times to the right when the left has only moved two times to the left. So that brings up kind of another um, thing that that I find, you know, hard to discuss, which is how do we separate the right from the far right? And does it matter when talking about these issues? Because I think something that I've struggled with is seeing a lot of my peers on the left kind of paint the right as one large picture Mm -hmm. um, with the same paintbrush, when really there's a lot of division, even within the right. There's, you know, the far right white nationalists, and then there's your everyday conservative guy, and then there's everything in between, you know? So what are your thoughts on where that division lies and is it important to create that division or or how do we talk about that? So I think it's really hard, especially right now, because there is such division in this country, at least here in the US, it's really bad. Um, but I think it's so difficult because um, left and liberal um, are so synonymous as well as conservative and right. And so I think it's really hard to have these discussions when maybe people's definitions are different than each other's. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly where the root of the problem starts. But I think it goes more than that with the idea that over the past like decade, the the party platforms have become so diverse and so partisan on so many issues that there seems to be little to no common ground anymore. And so that's kind of like why we are where we are with our, what, third government shutdown now under the Trump presidency. (laughs) So it's really hard because for me personally, I don't want to engage with conversation with people who are outrightly racist and um, xenophobic and homophobic and don't believe in my right to choose and all these different things. But at the same time, I can acknowledge like, yeah, we need to have these conversations to move Mm -hmm. forward. So I think it's really a question of where the line is for you, because if you can kind of find that and find it with another person, then civic like discourse can happen. But I feel like it's just become so difficult to do because everyone is so up in arms and so ready to just argue. And we can't find this common ground because parties have become so divided. So absolutely. I think finding common ground is one of the greatest challenges right now when we talk about the political discourse. And 
for me, I think one of the things that brought up some tension in my Instagram stories was when I kind of called out um, people on the left who are consistently pointing the blame to the right and saying that their decisions and their opinions are always uneducated, that they're misinformed. Uh, and because of that, not wanting to have these conversations because they don't want to entertain misinformation. They don't want to entertain an idea that is blatantly racist or what have you. And so it's this back and forth of, well, we need to educate and we need to discuss and debate in order to move forward. Yet so many people don't want to put themselves in that position because one, it is a lot of work. Like It is emotionally exhausting to have these conversations with people that we disagree with. And it takes a lot of time and effort. And two, a lot of people feel like it is um, kind of a dead end and like they're beating a dead horse when they're having these conversations. Have you found any tactics to having civil, civil conversations like this with people that you disagree with or how do you think we can find common ground when there's people on one side saying, look, you're completely uneducated, you're ignorant, you're bigoted, what have you. And then the people on the other side hold these beliefs and don't want to have the conversation because they feel like they're being oppressed and victimized from the other side. Right. That's a loaded question. Um, It's really difficult. And I think I'd be lying if I said that I have the right answer or I have these great strategies to use because I I don't and I I still struggle with how to talk to people because of course everyone is different but it's really hard especially talking mm-hmm. with family members or friends because mm-hmm. um the personal is political and I definitely value my friends but I think if someone were to support these racist ideologies or support a man who constantly is trying to strip rights away from women and LGBTQ people and immigrants. I just, I don't, I don't even want to say I don't feel comfortable and I don't want to say I don't feel like wasting my time. It's just, I don't feel like whatever I say can change their mind or is worth getting into because it'll just harm our friendship. And so I think that discussing it is absolutely important but sometimes you have to remember, like no matter how much you talk to someone about this, you ideally can't change their minds. And especially with today's political environment, it is so hard because you do have our president saying, you know, fake news this, fake news that, and discrediting facts and truth. And so how can you argue with someone who isn't arguing fact and truth? And I think that's where a lot of the Republican Party platform comes in too, because um a lot of people have been denouncing the party and either becoming independent or switching over to the Democratic Party because it no longer um, aligns with what mm-hmm. its true beliefs were. If you look at mm-hmm. even under Reagan policies and the Reagan Republican era, like it is nothing like it was today. And there are a lot of uh, mid-90s, 2000s Republicans that absolutely don't support what's going on. And I think we need more voices like that in Congress to kind of stop this madness going on. So I've been seeing like recently in the news, um, Mitt Romney came out with that op-ed piece and I've been seeing a lot of criticism from that. And I think we need more Republicans in the Senate 
in the house speaking out against this and not being afraid to Mm -hmm. because of a paycheck or Mm -hmm. getting reelected. And I think it really comes down to we need to start upholding our constitutional values again and playing fair game because nothing we've done so far feels like fair game and it doesn't feel like we're the America that we could be. Something I'm really curious about uh, is the landscape on university campuses. And it's something that has been Mm -hmm. an issue of contention or a point of contention, I think, for a lot of kind of thought leaders, if you want to call them that, on the right, or I guess libertarian, intellectual, dark web, that whole sphere of things. Um, One of the arguments against the political landscape on the left right now is that university campuses are kind of becoming these ideology factories for lefty liberals and there's no longer room for debate real debate or true debate between the left and right on university campuses because they are very left leaning i'm curious you still being in university in the what your experience has been like if you find that it's you know very true to being a liberal experience if you have friends or or students or peers that do identify with the right what has your experience been like so I think that overall the youth do in general identify more liberal leaning and I think that there absolutely is still a lot of um, liberal ideology that is on college campuses. But I think depending like where you are in the US, you're going to get a different education. Like if you go to maybe a conservative university in the South, you're not going to have the same liberal education that I'm getting at BU. So I think it's definitely location, 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 and also what you're getting out of it. So maybe if you're studying economics somewhere, it's going to be a more conservative approach than it may be somewhere else. But as far as like my personal experience, I've only been going to liberal institutions and there definitely is a presence of conservatives on campus. And I don't think there are great deals of contention. But yeah, the overall theme is definitely um, more liberal leaning. And I guess it kind of makes you then question like, what is it about this generation or previous generations in general Mm. that makes us so liberal? And Mm -hmm. maybe that could speak volumes to the state of our country and maybe the future of it, because statistically, the youth don't go out and vote. But that's slowly changing, especially Mm -hmm. after this last election with these midterms. Mm -hmm. So I think that there could definitely be a shift in this country and the youth vote. So. Another thing I'm curious about is this idea of no platforming speakers. I mean, there's some... Obvious ones in my head, like Milo, (laughs) who it's like, okay, that maybe makes sense in some cases. I don't have a fully formed feeling on some very extreme people, uh, but I'm hearing more and more that students are kind of campaigning against any sort of right wing speaker speaking at certain events or being on campus or having a presence on campus or what have you. Curious on your thoughts on that. I think it's hard because I personally haven't had any experience of this, but I do read about it and I do have an opinion on it. And I think it's hard because 
one in general universities don't want Mm. this liability so if they think that there is going to be an issue they don't want to deal with it and that's completely justified and understandable for whether it's someone on the far right the far left or just some controversial figure in general but i think the bigger problem is a lot of these students and yeah they probably happen to be liberal leading leaning don't want someone who doesn't have these good morals coming to speak and project their um, platform on a university campus. So if someone wants to come talk about immigration and talk about how we need a wall and how we need better immigration and talk about how these people coming in are all terrorists and want to do horrible things in our country, it's just blatantly racist and it's and it's not okay. So rather than making this a liberal, conservative, or left or right problem, I think it's a moral problem. And I think that a lot of college students don't want these immoral characters on campus grounds where university is supposed to be an educational experience, yes, and there should be debate, there should be discussion, but I don't think that people's lives and um, identities should be in question. So I think that's where a lot of it comes in. And it is easy to conflate with the sides because they are so polarized. But um, even looking at UNC right now with the Silent Sam statue, um, why do universities still have these racist figures, and why aren't they being taken down and still being commemorated? It's That's very, it's very point. interesting. That's something that I've seen and read a yeah. little, little bit more on. I, I feel like over the past year, this has kind of come up more and more. Because the other side is like, this mm-hmm. is a part of our history. And so at what point, I, I see kind of the Orwellian argument of, well, if we're trying to progress, how do we do that without remembering where we came from? And at what point are we kind of rewriting history right. by, you know, choosing to not acknowledge, you know, certain icons or figures or what have you of our past that brought us here? Exactly. And I think the hardest thing is we don't want to think about those things. We don't want to think that our country was founded on slavery and uh, pillaging other Native people. Um, And I think that's hard because we are a very nationalistic state and we do have great pride in the country that we live in. And I think to progress that we, we shouldn't try to rewrite our history and that we need to acknowledge these things in, in order to move forward, even if it is hard, even if it um, is is harmful, because it's still important. It's still our history. And I don't think that we should try to be rewriting it and claiming these figures to be so substantial and great when they did some not so great things. So whether we like it or not, this was our history and it does need to be acknowledged. How are you feeling about 2020? Are you optimistic? I am hopeful about the future of politics in this country. Um, Over the past week, I've been watching a lot of freshman representatives getting sworn in, and I was definitely teary-eyed. I think that representation is so important, and this is the most diverse Congress in history. Um, There were so many firsts for women and for minorities, and it was really inspiring to watch. And for the first time, I kind of looked at this class and was like, I could do this. And I think a lot of these members of Congress, specifically women, are paving that way for me. When it comes to ideologies, um, I'm not so optimistic about. Um, I don't see them merging together anytime soon. 
And I think that this further divide is an imminent threat to our democracy and our politics because we've seen what uh, ideology can do and it's very dangerous. And I am worried about what could happen. But right now, um, in terms of 2020, I think I will feel more optimistic once more candidates are announcing that they're running. The Democratic Party definitely needs to unify more in um, in order to kick Trump out of the White House. Um, Not many people have announced that they're running yet. Um, And I think that the backlash that Elizabeth Warren has already received is very telling towards how we view women candidates. So I think that could definitely be harmful to others that may announce like uh, Kamala Harris. And so it'll be very interesting to see where that goes. Um, But I think that the midterm elections um, really gave me a spark of hope because I think that this new Congress is really going to make some waves and kind of help us navigate through this. And I feel really fortunate to be studying political science during this era because I think that the politics of this country are going to change drastically over our lifetimes. And it should be really interesting to see where it goes. Absolutely. And how awesome is it that we have young people like you who are so... (laughs) you know, passionate and thoughtful and willing to kind of look at all sides. I think that's so important and really telling of where we're going. So I'm optimistic, although I'm removed by a country. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm allowed to be a little bit more optimistic. I thought Um, about going to school in Canada. I really considered it. Where did you think of going? McGill? Yeah, I I think a girl younger than me, she ended up going and I thought about it. That would have been so fun. Aww. I know. But I was like, you know what? I want to stay in the US. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this was a really great conversation. I'm so glad we did this. And thank you so much, Natalie. Me too. Thank you so much.